The other day I had somebody ask me an interesting question and they said, what is it going to take to fix America? That's a good question, isn't it? Because raised in my generation, it was right about the time I started going to college and I got with some friends that um, loved the Lord and they said, let's go to a Bible conference in Fort Worth. And I said, okay, sounds like a good trip to me. And uh, so I went with them. And while we were at that Bible conference, we had uh, different preachers, of course. And the theme was uh, change, basically changing America. And they uh, told us a statistic that if every born-again person would just vote... The percentage was very low of evangelical Christians that voted. Man, we could have anything we wanted in America. You know what um, I found out? That statistic is just about the same today all these years later. A lot of people who claim to be Christians and have our kind of values, they just don't vote. I personally think that is very poor stewardship with the country and the government that we've been given but I am going to also say this, at the tender age of 62, voting doesn't work. Not like we want it to. You know why? Politicians lie. Right? Now, you know I'm a conservative, and I am so tired of politicians running as conservatives and then governing like liberals. And for, you know, 40 years now, uh, well, it's been 42 years, uh, we were told if we could just elect the right president, then he would put the right people on the Supreme Court and, boy, they'll last 25, 30, 40 years on the court, man, it's going to be great. You know what I've uh, lived to see? Those people that are on the left, they never turn conservative. But the people that are supposed to be conservative, they sure have a tendency to head to the left. If everything we put our hopes in with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, I was a card-carrying member of the moral majority back in 1980. If everything worked the way they said it would, we should have had uh, Roe versus Wade overturned by now, prayer back in schools, Bible back in schools, all of those kind of things that we bemoaned all those years ago that were so terrible. Hadn't worked. Hadn't worked so well. And even with all of that emphasis, all of the national days of prayer, not against that, but even with those kind of things, and uh, all of the voters' guides that we would give out and all of those things going on like that. Is America better with all of the Christian emphasis and the voter registration and the um, things that we've done just among Christians? We're better off today? Or have we consistently gotten worse? Let me answer that. It's worse, isn't it? And it's just a reminder that even the everyday things that we ought to do, we ought to pray for our country, we ought to be involved, we ought to be informed, we ought to vote. I'm not, not against any of that kind of stuff, except to say that God is telling us 
do the right thing anywhere you can and everywhere you can, you ought to. This is, a, as I said before, a great stewardship, this country and the freedoms that we've been given, and we need to take care of it. But politics, voting, all of that is not where our hope is. Never has been, never will be. Sometimes we look at things and uh, what would it take to change America? Well, I'll tell you, the, the media. You know, if we could just change the media. If we could get back to Andy Griffith and leave it to Beaver. Mr. Ed was a dumb show. You know, one of the dumbest ones ever. Some of you won't even remember this. Some of you will. Do you remember the show, My Mother, the Car? Oh, oh. You know, just ridiculous kind of stuff. And if we could just get the media back to that kind of uh, stuff, boy, that, that would transform America. Maybe we think it would. Until you sometimes read about what was going on behind the scenes of some of those moral shows, the drugs, the alcohol, the affairs, the homosexuality, all of those kind of things, right? I remember in 1970, would have been about 1978. Now, that's a long time ago, okay? Hearing rumors that Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle, was a homosexual. Oh, come on. No way. Turns out they were right all those years ago, weren't they? You think about the things that we have seen and experienced and you realize that a lot of those people were fakes. Not near as moral, not near as family friendly as we thought they were. And so the poison was kind of coming in and infiltrating our nation and our culture. We just couldn't see it. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky when you think about it, right? And uh, then we kind of thought, well, if we could just go back to Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it was, or that's the way it is, or whatever he said, right? That would, that would really make all the difference in the world. Except even back then, the news was kind of filtered as to what the three networks, we only had three back then, remember, and uh, what they wanted to cover and what they didn't want to cover. They just weren't as blatant about it. And they seemed to be more fair, probably were. They seemed to have more ethics, probably did. And, um, you know, you, you felt like, in fact, uh, Cronkite was named for several years as the most trusted man in America. And uh, yet, when you find out some of the things that went on behind the scenes, even with, with Uncle Walter, uh, not always what we thought it was. And uh, we think about things like, well, if we would just put prayer back in school. Now, I'm a proponent that it never should have been taken out. But putting it back in right now, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what I think about that. You say, Why? Ooh, in this society in which we live, here would be my question. Who's going to do the praying? And it may be some transgender whatever, and 
it may be some liberal whomever and uh, all of that. I mean, who, who knows who's going to pray? I'm not, not really convinced those kind of things are really the answer. And we could go on and on and on and on and on with what we think the uh, answers might be. And we might be right on some of those things. They might really help. But when it comes to doing anything that is really of lasting value, we've got to get honest and understand that Jesus told us that we are the light of the world. I don't feel much like the light of the world. I don't feel like my light shines all that bright. And yet that's what Jesus said. And he is supposed to shine through all of us. So I would uh, propose this. What if every truly born-again Christian was passionate about the gospel? And we at least, at least had equal passion about the gospel that we have about our favorite uh, football team or recipe or car or motorcycle or our grandkids or anything like that. What if we could at least equal that? Do you think it would make a difference in the world in which we live? Would it bring on some persecution? Yeah, I'm sure it probably would. But would it also bring on an immense measure of joy? You know, when I think about uh, our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world, I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine being a Christian like we are in a Muslim country. Can you? Can you imagine? You think your kids are under pressure now? What do you think it would be like if you were living in a land where all you heard all around you were the five calls to prayer every day of Muslims. What, what would you think it would be like? What do you think it would be like to try to gather? You know, we wouldn't be saying, are we having church tonight? Nobody would say that. They would be saying something more like this. Where are we going to go to church tonight? Because they would have to gather in secret. We would have to gather in secret. Can you imagine what it would be like? To be afraid to use instruments in our worship? Because somebody might hear. Can you imagine what it must be like to try to gather? And when the pastor says, turn in your Bible to John 3. And only a couple of people in the entire church have a copy of the Word of God. The other ones only have partial copies. And you may or may not have what he has called you to go to can you imagine living like that can you imagine whenever someone is teaching you let's say you tune into a television program and you're living in uh, Iran and you were a Christian and you happen to get a channel there that you've never seen before never ever seen before and it's got preaching all on it from Christian preachers You've never heard of TBN. Somebody named Kenneth Copeland begins to preach. And boy, he's passionate. And he sounds authoritative. But you don't have a Bible to find out if he's right or not. How susceptible would you be to a prosperity gospel or a false 
gospel. What if you got on and somebody was telling you, yes, it's good to trust Jesus, but you've got to be baptized by the right people in addition to that. Would you fall for it? Oh, I don't... Careful. You don't have a Bible. You don't have a lot of the teaching opportunities that we have. You can't just play anything you want in your car. You can't stream and download good, sound gospel preachers. What, what would it be like and how different would your life be? For me, I can't even imagine it. I can't imagine a world where we get together for church and somebody goes, well, where's, where's Bill? And someone else goes, haven't you heard? No. What, is he sick or something? What, is he out of town? No, he was martyred this past week. And to actually face death and plan funerals for people that have been killed for being a Christian and for speaking up about the gospel. I can't imagine that kind of world, whether it be in a communist country and uh, some of the bozos that live here in America and have the freedoms that we have that want to turn this country into a socialist or a communist country are abject fools to want to do that. Because they think they're going to continue just being free and happy and getting all of this free stuff. And they never know that a government that can give everything to you can also take everything from you. Isn't that right? We don't want them having that kind of power. And we don't want them controlling us in, in that regard. I can't imagine the pressure. I can't imagine the stress. Can you, for a, uh, just a moment, picture that you are put in prison for your faith? What's your family going to do? Everybody knows you're in prison. They're probably not going to get any kind of welfare they're probably not going to get any kind of assistance from the government. Neighbors are probably not going to be quite as friendly because they're afraid of being associated with you. But your church family would sure matter, wouldn't it? And people praying for you. People making sure your family got food. But can you imagine being in that prison cell? And it's not just about what you would face. It's what is your church family going through if you're a pastor, for example. What's your wife going through? What's your husband going through? What are your kids going to do? Who is watching out for them? Who's taking care of them? Uh, pressures that people face all over the world. Well, that leads us to think about what we're going to talk about tonight, which is titles of the gospel. Because we are not as nearly as passionate about the gospel in a free society, first of all, as we ought to be, and I think we all know that. I also think we're not as passionate about it as people who are under persecution. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, this is not a plea for persecution. I don't want it. But I do have to admit the fact that the church, in its infancy in the book of Acts, grew mightily, and the word spread mightily when they were persecuted. And that hasn't quit in the centuries and the millennia after that. In 1949, when communism took over China, you've heard of Lottie Moon and people like that. Uh, Southern Baptist witness in China was very, very strong when the communists took over and our missionaries had to leave. 
There was one, his name was Bill Wallace, a Southern Baptist missionary that refused to leave and he ended up being martyred uh, because he loved the Chinese people and would not leave. Lottie Moon was already dead by that time. And um, China became a closed-off society. They did a lot of purging of religious people. Brother Dale uh, talked about on his trip to China back in the mid-90s going into a church where there just were not any men of a certain age. And Bill Green was talking to some people, if I've got my story right, and asking, where are the men that go with these women? And they were the ones that were killed for their faith in the Cultural Revolution. And uh, that's the way they operate. And they were closed off and nobody knew what all was going on. It was a kind of a different China in some ways than we see today. And uh, when it opened back up for trade and for education and different things like that, we had a lot of missionaries going over there um, to be an English teacher. And while they were being an English teacher, they would work uh, secretly with the underground churches. And you know what they found out? The prediction had been made that when the missionaries left in 1949, Christianity was over in China. When it opened back up and we were able to get back in and have boots on the ground and see with our own eyes all of that, we found out that the church had grown exponentially and we just didn't know it because they didn't publicize those kind of things. Made an early church father put it like this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And there's something about people that are willing to die for a cause. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. What was it that made Martin Luther King so powerful? Well, he was a great orator. Yeah, that, that's true. He was. Uh, he was the right person at the right time. Yeah, I, I believe that. I don't know that he could have done what he did 30 years earlier, but he did what he did, and it was the right time, and um, everything was moving that direction. But you know what I think a lot of it was? Even before his assassination, what made him so powerful? He was willing to die for his cause. The night before he was assassinated, he predicted his own death. And he didn't know for sure it was going to happen, but he alluded to it. He knew there was a good chance he would not live to be an old man, and he didn't. What about you? What about me? What about Christians throughout church history and even in our own age? What happens if we would be witnesses for Christ... And we would be passionate enough about the gospel to die were we called to do so. There are a lot of people living in those kind of countries who don't die for their faith. There were a lot of people in biblical times. Not everybody was put in jail. Paul had a lot of people that he would write to that never went to jail like he did. They never were martyred like he was martyred persecuted but not to the same degree or in the same way that he was not everybody's called to do that but it seems like they were all willing to lay their lives on the line and be counted for Christ whatever it might take what if we had that kind 
of passion. What if we had maybe even a tenth of that kind of passion for the gospel? Do you think God could use that? And do you think it would matter for those of us who are called to be salt and light in a dark and corrupt and wicked society? Do you think it might make a difference? And I'm saying, and my contention is, absolutely, because there is nothing more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ on this earth. Communist countries have fallen because of the work of the gospel. The Roman Empire fell because of the work of the gospel. There have been all kinds of things throughout history where we have seen just how powerful the gospel is if people will believe it. And we're tempted to look and say, if they will believe it, and I want to say, maybe it needs to start right here. Do you believe the gospel? And I don't mean that. Do you personally believe the gospel for your own salvation? I'm pretty confident you do. But here's what I want to ask you. Do you believe the gospel with the kind of confidence that it can save that reprobate neighbor, that it can save that criminal? That it can save the drug addict and the alcoholic. Do you really have that kind of faith in the gospel? And I'll just put it this way. Boy, the early church did. They didn't let anything stop them. So before we go any further, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we talk about these things tonight, and they'll be uh, self-evident... There's one thing that we can't really teach on, preach on, manufacture or work up or anything, and that's faith. And I want to ask you, just as you gave us faith to believe the gospel for our salvation, would you give us faith for witnessing? Faith where we really believe that we hold the cure. We are the ones who have the life-giving gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, true to the Word of God, that can change people. And I pray, Lord, that we would have it to where we are burning with it. We're on fire with it. And, uh, Lord, we would be like the apostles when they're told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, we can't help but speak of the things we've seen and heard. I pray we would have a can't-help-it kind of faith where we just can't keep our mouths shut. It's not that we have to figure out a way to witness. It's we can't stop. And we need you to do that so much for us and for our nation and for this world. So thank you, Lord, because I believe that as we pray this, the willingness is not a problem for you. It's on our part. Are we willing to lay it all on the line for Jesus? And that's what I pray the answer would be yes, and it would be borne out in our lives, and we would be fruit-bearing Christians, light and salt in a dark world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, going back to the times in which I kind of came of age, there was a lot of emphasis on... uh, Bible prophecy. So much so that I really didn't think I'd ever graduate high school. It looked like the Lord from what preachers and organizations said. The Lord was just on the brink of coming back. And uh, I really just kind of thought and and heard, boy, it's going to be at any given time. Well, it, uh, it wasn't. 
Do I still believe it? Yeah, we're closer than we've ever been before. But we always seem to get the timing off. And when we get caught up into a lot of that stuff, rather than causing us to get really passionate about sharing the truth of the gospel, I think there's a certain number of people that they go, oh, Jesus is coming? Well, I'll just sit back and wait for him to come. And there have been those nuts that have put on white robes and gone to the top of a mountain and waited and, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, most of us won't do that. But I think sometimes we kind of get the idea, well, uh, you know, I'll just wait and the Lord will come and then everything will be fine. But uh, we don't know when that day is coming. And so when I think about how we could impact this world for the gospel, and I think about um, our children, I think about our grandchildren, I think about those that are going to come along after we are gone. And what are we leaving behind for them and what kind of legacy are we leaving And we may may work really hard to leave them money and to leave them a a business or to leave them uh, family traditions, those kind of things. But what about a legacy for the gospel? Wouldn't that be the best thing that we could give them? And so in order to have us think like that and have it really warm our hearts, I want to talk tonight. You've got a a paper that you can kind of follow along with and uh, use in your own study if you want to. Uh, the idea of the titles of the gospel. Now, uh, the word gospel in the Greek is euangelion. Uh, we get our word evangel or evangelist or evangelize. And it, it literally is the word gospel. When you see somebody that they say, I'm an evangelist, they're actually a gospelist. Uh, that's what that word means. And the word gospel means good news. And what is the good news? That God sent His Son to the earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, was punished by God for our sins, and then He rose from the dead on the third day and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and will save anybody that will quit putting their trust in themselves or their religious works or anything like that and put it totally in Jesus Christ. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we know that that is indeed good news for uh, each of us. And uh, then as you look through the Bible and you look at how the gospel is described, we find that it's used 78 times in the New Testament. Euangelion, or a form of that word, 78 times in the New Testament. We won't look at all 78, but uh, we are going to think about this good news of salvation through Christ, and add this word, because this is very important, Christ alone. And there are any number of denominations and people that claim to be Christians who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus just like you do, but they add something that has to be done for salvation. you got to be saved and trust Christ, plus go through the seven sacraments of the church, a Roman Catholic might say. Or you've got to go through these various rites and rituals, a Mormon might say, in addition to Jesus. You've got to be baptized in our church by one of our ministers, somebody in the church of Christ might say. And we contend that the Bible and the gospel is the declaration, it's Jesus only, Jesus alone that saves us. And we see this as we look at these different titles. So let's go to number one. 
The first thing that we see that it is called the gospel of God. In Romans chapter 15 verse 16, and I'll, I'll just read the verses, but you've got them there on your paper. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The gospel of God. Now this tells us where it all started. You did not come up with the gospel. I did not come up with the gospel. Our predecessors did not come up with the gospel. The early church did not come up with the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of God originating and coming from God. And that's why Isaiah 53 is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of the substitutionary death of Christ and salvation by grace through faith. Where'd they get all of that? Because it came from God. That's why Passover is such a beautiful picture of the uh, shedding of the blood of the innocent lamb so that we are spared from death. Where'd that come from? That came from God who is giving us glimpses and pictures of the gospel even in the Old Testament. And so it, it tells us that because we are those people in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that it says no one seeks after God, that means we were never going to find it, we were never going to discover it, we were never going to come up with it, we would never say, Eureka, I found the gospel. didn't happen. It had to be revealed by God. God came to us, and that's what we celebrate. Can you believe it is, even today, it has not quite been a month since we had Christmas? Doesn't that seem like it was about a year ago? And uh, we talk about Christmas, the incarnation of, of God. And uh, what is, why is that important? Because we couldn't get to him, but he came to us. And he came announcing good news, glad tidings, the angel said. That means good news of great joy. And what was the great joy? For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that title, Savior, implies we are the lostures of it, so we need a Savior. Okay? Did you get that? And uh, because we are lost, somebody's got to save, rescue, or to deliver us, and it is the gospel of God because we don't seek after God, we don't understand, we've altogether become unprofitable, we've gone each to our own way. So it has to be of God and from God and that's the only reason that we know what we know today and understand what we understand. Number two, notice that it is also called the gospel of Christ. Why? Because that's how God the Father gets it to us. It doesn't bypass Christ. There are not many roads to heaven. There are not many roads to God. There's only one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, so we think about the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16 is where this is used. For I am not ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so it's about what Christ did. I get disturbed and concerned when I hear people, if I ask them, uh, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Tell me about that. Well, I... And then they tell me what they did. And I did this, and I did this, and I did this. I get concerned. Because the gospel is not about what you did, or any decision you made, or any prayer that you prayed, or any action that you took, or any actions that you quit. That really has 
nothing to do with your salvation. It may have to do with your sanctification, but not your salvation. What was your salvation? What, what, what is it really all about? It's what Christ did because it's the gospel of Christ, the gospel about Christ, the good news about Jesus, we'll say, that he came and what he did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. So it's the gospel of God. It is the gospel of Christ. And so we don't want to short-circuit that. We don't want to take the attention off of Jesus. And sometimes we say things like, if you'll just ask Jesus into your heart. Okay, well, we say we're talking about Jesus, but what is really implied there? It's me. I have to do something. I have to let Jesus into my heart. And it's not really focused upon what Christ has done for me. And there are all kinds of people that will do some things that are uh, kind of a mistake. They will talk nothing except about the love of the Lord Jesus. Well, I'm so glad the Lord Jesus loves us. But uh, if the sinner is feeling pretty secure and happy in the way that they live, they don't really care whether Jesus loves them or not. I'm okay the way that I am. It's when the sin issue comes up and it's when they are warned about hell and it's when they see that they are lost and without hope apart from Jesus, that's when things began to happen and that's what the apostles always proclaimed. There's some people who talk about the love of Christ without the lordship of Christ. Oh, you can get saved. Just pray this prayer. And once saved, always saved. You can live any way you want to live and you can still go to heaven when you die. Where do you find that in the scripture? Believers are drafted into an army and they are conscripted to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not your own, Paul said. You are bought with a price. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And some people proclaim Christ as an example instead of a sinless substitute. Well, he taught us devotion. He taught us loyalty. He taught us how to die for a cause and those kind of things. Boy, the atonement goes so, so far beyond that. And then, um, as we have said before, some people proclaim the death of Christ without the resurrection. Don't leave that out. He's a living Savior. He's not just a martyr for the cause. He is a living Savior. And uh, Easter's coming up in really just a matter of weeks now, and we get to celebrate all of that. I'm um, amazed whenever uh, people talk about, for example, uh, Church of Christ. You've got to be saved, and you've got to be baptized. They say that's part of the gospel. Well, it's interesting. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17... For Christ did not send me to baptize. Let that sink in. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Notice how he separates those two things. The good news of Jesus Christ is about Christ and what he did. And baptism is a first step of obedience in all of that. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's got to be more than that, they might say. And yet there is not. It's a very simple thing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay? Number three. It's a glorious gospel. We'll call it the glorious gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said... Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, 
lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. So you think about the fact that our Lord came, and yes, he did set a good example, and he did many good works, and he helped a lot of people, and he established something that, I mean, we're a part of it here today as a church, but oh, it's so far beyond that. Every time you proclaim the gospel, whether you're in a church, whether you're in a Sunday school class, whether you are holding hands around the family dinner table and you talk about the gospel with your children as, even as you pray, whether you're on the job, whether you're at school, whether you're talking to a friend, whether you're talking to a relative, whether you're talking to a perfect stranger, the glory of God that we talked about this morning that would come down at that tent of meeting that Moses experienced, According to what Paul said, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. You may not see it, but God is being glorified and his glory is resting on you and in that situation. Whether they're saved or not, God is glorified every time you share his gospel. And you have the privilege of not just standing by your tent and watching it, you have the privilege of being involved in it because it is the glorious gospel that's why paul told timothy don't be ashamed of the of the lord or of me his prisoner why because the gospel that we preach and the gospel that is being proclaimed it is a glorious thing it's something that you ought to rejoice in it's something that you ought to glory in yourself john 1 14 says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Man, that's amazing. And that same cloud of glory that led Israel through the wilderness and the pillar of fire that led them by night, that's what you have seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what indwells you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are witnessing for Jesus, as feeble as it may be, God is glorified and His glory shines in this dark world. That's good motivation. Number four. Another title is it's called The Gospel of Grace. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But none of these things move me, Paul said, nor do I count my life dear to myself. There's that idea of being willing to die. So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the good news, the euangelion of the grace of God. It's a message of grace. Do you get it? Every other religion except biblical Christianity teaches man climbing a ladder, climbing a staircase, doing good deeds to ascend to where God is. Christianity alone teaches that there is no ladder and there is no staircase except down, and that would be to hell. 
But God, in his infinite love and mercy, he came down to us. He is the one who not only demanded the sacrifice, but he became the sacrifice for our sins. Where do you find that? Anywhere else at all. That is a wonderful, powerful, glorious thing. It's called grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And when you think about all of that, God has done it all. And he's paid the price. He's done the work. I mean, if I am saved by works, it's not by mine. It's by the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The wonderful grace of Jesus that we proclaim. And so it's a message of grace. And it shows the need of grace as we reveal sin to other people and we reveal to them their lostness and their need for a compassionate, loving, powerful God to do the work for them and uh, to let them know and for us to be reminded humans are sinners who deserve hell and even our good deeds are contaminated. The Bible says they're all like filthy rags and nothing we do is acceptable to God. And so uh, what has to happen? Well, then God has to do it. And praise God, he did do it. And he did it for us and included us in this. Someone said, in order to understand the good news of grace, you must first understand the bad news of man. Lewis Drummond, uh, a Southern Baptist of a couple of decades ago, said that. He was an evangelism professor at one of our seminaries. He's with the Lord now. Another one uh, William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, did you know they used to be a gospel-centered denomination and movement? And he made this statement, great preaching is proclaiming judgment and then putting a cross in the middle of it. We don't want to leave that out. All we like sheep have gone astray, but he has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. And uh, we can't leave out the judgment. We can't leave out the cross. Okay, number five. Did you know it's also called the gospel of peace? How many families have been brought back together because daddy believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Quit running around, quit being drunk, quit beating on them, quit wasting all their money. But he got saved and now all of a sudden the family is together and there's peace and harmony in that home. How many people do you know that you may go to church with that had Christ not intervened, you wouldn't like that person, you would hate that person, you would be against that person, and yet because of the gospel of peace, you have fellowship with that person today and harmony with that person. But even far beyond any of that, we were at war with God at one time, according to the scripture. And now we have peace with God. And where does that peace come from? Because we decided to act better, because we decided to be better people, because we turned over a new leaf? No. It came because He Himself is our peace who has broken down the wall of partition, the Bible says. And so you and I have peace with God based upon the blood and the sacrifice of the living Lord Jesus Christ. It's the peace of God. And so Ephesians 6.15. 
And having shod your feet with the preparation of the what? The gospel of peace. Because it's the gospel that we have all of these wonderful benefits of having peace with people around us. But the greatest thing is we now have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace is always linked to the cross. Isaiah 52 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him and by his stripes. We were healed. In Ephesians chapter 5, 12, we've already made reference to this, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, uh, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the wall of separation. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him whether things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace and cross always linked together and the result of the most violent act in human history where the wrath of God the infinite wrath of God was poured out on the infinite son of God at Calvary results in you and me having peace with God always linked together and it is the gospel of peace and never separate the cross from that number six it's called the gospel of your salvation. The good news that saved you, in other words. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And let's just think about that. Somebody witnessed to you. Might have been a preacher from a pulpit. Could have been. Might have been somebody on television or radio or Maybe it was on a cassette tape or a CD or something like that. Might have been a friend, might have been a relative, might have been your parents, might have been a Sunday school teacher, might have been an evangelist, might have been a missionary, somebody witnessed to you. And when you believed that word and repented of your sins, that gospel became your gospel, the gospel of your salvation. You possess it. It has changed your life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Talk about hope and talk about possibilities and all of this. You're a new creature in Christ. So you think about the fact that that's how you got saved. We look around at the world and we say, well, the problem is they need Jesus. And yet we don't share with them the very thing that caused our salvation, that brought our salvation. What's wrong with us? What in the world are we thinking? How dare we, in fact, have the audacity to condemn them without telling them the solution as well? Let that sink in. We become negative. And we become experts at pointing the finger and pointing out everybody else's sin and where they're wrong. But how much do we hate them not to give them 
the solution. There is a solution. And it's not us. And it's not our church. And it's not our rituals. It's in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for sinners 2,000 years ago and said, Greater love hath no man than this, than that one should lay down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life for you. This is the gospel of your salvation, the gospel that saved you. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let's continue on. In whom also... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you, you will be saved. You, even you, Paul says, will be saved. You may be a person who thinks I'm as far from being saved, I'm as far from being godly as I could possibly be. And yet there are no limits put on this by anyone except God himself. And what has he done? Paid the price for our sins so that we can proclaim whoever confesses Christ as Lord and surrenders to him and trusts in him alone for salvation can be saved. I don't care who they are, where they are, what their background is, what they've done, what they haven't done. What their situation is, it's a wonderful, wonderful gospel. And that's why you and I are saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John 3, 7, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You know, for anything to really take place, we have to get to the point to where people understand that they need to be born again, that they can be born again, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, they get to the place to where they say, I must be born again, and therefore I will be born again. That's a work of God. And that's what changed you and changed your life. And that's why it is so important for you to witness to other people and why we're commanded to go into all the world with the gospel. This is the gospel of your salvation. You can testify to it. You may not be able to explain a lot, but you can sure tell what happened to you. And you can tell how Jesus changed your life. And that's a powerful weapon and a powerful tool as you witness. Which brings us down then to number seven. And it is called by the Apostle Paul, which all of these are. Romans chapter 2 verse 16, he calls it my gospel. My gospel. Paul, how dare you? This is a gospel of God. And yet Paul says in Romans 2.16, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And what that tells us is Paul's responsibility. He felt that the gospel had been given and entrusted to him, and he dare not be unfaithful but to be passionate, to be willing to die for it, because it was something that God gave him to guard as a treasure and to share with other people to the point of death if necessary. 
he conveys this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. According to the, another one of our titles, glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And here's the thing I think we don't understand. God has entrusted his truth, his gospel to you to carry out to the ends of the earth. And someone said, it is not until the gospel of God, where we started, becomes my gospel that real evangelism takes place. It's when I see it, the gospel of my salvation, and then to this point, the gospel that is mine, the gospel that I possess, the gospel that God himself has entrusted to me. I'm not going to let anybody trample it through the dirt. I'm not going to let anybody pervert it. I'm not going to act as though it's no big deal if somebody misrepresents it or misunderstands it. I want everybody to understand what God has said, that there's only one way to salvation, and that's through the grace of God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we think about this thing about the gospel of God becoming my gospel and what a glorious, wonderful thing that is. If you were put on special assignment by a five-star general, he calls you up and he says, I've got an assignment for you and I want you to take this document and I want you to get it to, and he gives you that assignment and guard it with your life. The future depends upon this. You would take that and you would, first of all, be honored that he would choose you. And secondly, you would guard it indeed with your life. You wouldn't leave it out laying around. You wouldn't leave it like where you might leave your phone and, uh, you know, something like that. You wouldn't do anything like that. You wouldn't spill coffee on it. You wouldn't do anything like that. You would keep it safe and you would take it to its intended destination. Well, when the Bible says that the gospel has been entrusted to us, God himself has given us this gospel. Don't monkey with it. Don't change it. You can't improve upon it. It comes from God. As someone said one time, talking about preachers, preachers, you are not the chef. You're the waiter. And when I go to a restaurant, I want the chef to make my food, and I want the waiter to just deliver the food, but I don't want the waiter messing with anything on the plate. Can you imagine if you go to a restaurant after church tonight and you go and you see the waiter or waitress carrying your food and then before they get to your table, they go, they take and, and say, let me taste these potatoes. Oh, they need a little bit more salt. Let me get this for you and we'll put a little butter on it. We'll put this over here and, and uh, uh, I know you wanted the steak medium, but I like it better medium well, so I had it cooked a little extra for you. You would be livid. Do not touch my food. Do not mess with my food. And do not change my food. Can you imagine what the Lord thinks when we, as his people, we get the message from his word and then some preacher monkeys with it, messes with it, changes it, waters it down, compromises it, explains it away as they give it out to their people? God's going to have something to say about that one of these days. And can you imagine what it is when we read the gospel in the Bible and we go, oh, there's got to be a better way. Nobody's going to believe this as if we are God's marketing agent 
And if somehow he would just listen to us, we could get this put together where a whole lot more is going to happen. And can you hear God thundering from heaven? Don't mess with my gospel that I have entrusted to you. Deliver it. That's your job. And may God grant that we deliver the pure, the unadulterated gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that we recognize we're responsible and that we are to stand up and we are to guard it and we also are to share what has been entrusted to each one of us. Not just the preacher, not just the evangelist, but to all of us. God has entrusted you with His truth. Now go forth as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and carry out your mission to the very end. You've been entrusted with the gospel. Don't let anything distract you from the orders that you've been given. Father, as we conclude, forgive us for the times we've gone A-W-O-L and we've been involved in all of the pursuits except what you've called us to do. Forgive us when we substitute even things that might appear to be godly and churchy and we never get around to doing what you gave us marching orders to do. Go ye therefore into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would have a fire burning in our bones. Jeremiah said, I couldn't quit proclaiming because it was a fire in my bones. Don't let us leave it to the preacher. Don't let us leave it to the missionary. Don't let us leave it to the evangelist. Let us be involved and be participators in your eternal work that you ordained from before the foundation of the world to bring in your people. It's rigged. And may we be a part of all of that and love it and enjoy it and be excited about it, be passionate about it. And Lord, if it would please you as we do that, use that as salt and light to change our wicked culture. Forgive us, Lord, to change people's lives and hearts and to make them children of God that can join forces with us to multiply in numbers and to carry out the gospel in an even greater and more effective way. You said you would build your church. Oh, Lord, we call upon you to do it and to do it for the glory of our King, the glory of the kingdom in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate